addresses this letter to exiles. What we said is that this uh, word exile is a metaphor. So he's not talking to uh, literal exiles who are literally uh, banished from their homeland. Uh, he's saying that all Christians in the world are exiles. Um, all of us, although we reside here, we may have a home here and neighbors and, a, and a, you know, an address. Um, as Christians, your uh, citizenship is somewhere else. Your values come from, come from somewhere else. Your identity comes from somewhere else. And so the question is, how do we live as, as exiles in the world? How do we engage? Uh, how do we relate to the world, even though we don't belong to it? And so uh, Peter uh, has been talking about um, engaging in politics as exiles. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. Uh, last week he looked at uh, racism and oppressive systems like slavery. How do Christians engage in that? And uh, this week uh, Peter is going to talk about how Christians relate to marriage. How do we live uh, in marriage as exiles? That's the question that Peter is going to answer today. And uh, someone wrote me an email this week and just said, Brent, you are just putting yourself through the ringer <laughs> here the last few weeks. We talked about politics and racism. Now we're going to talk about gender roles in marriage. Um, but, you know, you've got to love it. You go through the Bible and you just hit the topics as they come. And so um, today we're going to talk about what Peter has to say <clears throat> about marriage. And uh, let me begin like this. So um, there's a feminist poet. Her name is June Jordan. Her uh, picture is going to come up on the screen. And, and uh, June Jordan is a former Christian. She grew up in the faith. But uh, as she became a, an adult, she, she, uh, she walked away from Christianity. She left her faith. And uh, she gives a lot of reasons for this. But she recently wrote a, a book of poetry. And in this book, there's a, book, there's a poem called, I Kissed God Goodbye. And uh, in this poem, she describes why she left Christianity, all the reasons why she, uh, she left her faith. And at the heart of all those reasons, she says, is God's view of women. And so in her poem, she lists what she perceived as God's numerous offenses against women in the Bible. And she called God the author of patriarchy, slavery, misogyny, and sexism. And Recently, she read her poem to an audience in San Francisco, and after she read this poem, the audience just was roaring with approval. Now, I bring this up because when, you, when we read passages like this one, it almost seems like 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, is corroborating her, her uh, impression about God, doesn't it? I mean, you, some of you, as we read this passage, if you were paying attention, you were just squirming in your seat. You know, this, to, to Western ears, this passage that we read, it, it, it almost makes your skin crawl. I mean, it, it just seems so backwards and regressive. Because Peter seems to put women in this oppressive, demeaning position in marriage. He says, I want you to submit or be subject to your husbands. He tells women to obey their husbands like a master. He tells wives they should call their husbands Lord. Women, don't, or men, don't try this at home. <laughs> you know, and then at the very end, you know, after he's been putting uh, women down the whole passage, at the very end, he kind of lets, lets husbands off the hook with just one little tiny verse saying, hey, but don't worry, your wife is weaker, so just deal with it. How do we read passages like this one? What do we do with it? Is Peter a misogynist? Is, is Peter kind of... Uh, sexist and demeaning of women. 
And honestly, when, when uh, you look throughout history, and even in our current context, there are Christian men who have weaponized this passage. They have twisted it, and they have used it to oppress women and demean women and belittle them, commanding them to submit. So it's been used uh, in terrible ways. And so again, the question is, how do we read it? Well, today I want to show that this, this passage is not sexist. Peter is not trying to de demean women here. In fact, when you look at the context, I want you to see that this passage was revolutionary in Peter's day, and it's revolutionary in our day. So we're going to jump into it. And uh, last week I said that we were doing a porcupine sermon. Uh, I'm going to have many fine points, but they're going to be kind of all over the place, all right? So uh, here, here's, here's the roadmap. First, we're going to look at the context of the passage. Then we're going to look at uh, four reasons why this passage is revolutionary for women. And then finally, we're going to uh, apply it in our current day. And so first, uh, let's jump into the context. So before you even read this passage, uh, there's several things you need to know about Peter's uh, Roman uh, uh, you know, ancient uh, Greek context. You need to know that that context was patriarchal. Uh, Sylvia Walby, who's a uh, sociologist, she defines patriarchy this way. She said, patriarchy is a system of social structures and pra practices in which men dominate, oppress, and exploit women. And what you need to know is that ancient Rome, almost every single group in that ancient culture of Rome was patriarchal. This was a culture that exploited and oppressed women across the board. So let me give you some examples. So uh, one author says, unless you were a priestess in a fertility cult or a prostitute, there weren't many economic opportunities for women in, Gre in the Greco-Roman culture. Women weren't allowed to own a business, obtain a, high, a higher education, or have a voice in the public square. And so if you're a woman, your education your economic status and your voice was completely connected to a man. Uh, a woman in that culture was considered to be the property of her husband or father. So if you were a woman in that ancient culture, you didn't have rights, you didn't have, uh, you know, status, you were considered property of a man. Uh, women had little significant say in whom they married or when they married. And so a woman in that day, they were married off at an extremely young age, many of them even before puberty, and they were married off to a man who was much older than them. And then husbands could divorce with, with impunity, and yet a wife had no right at all to divorce her husband for any reason at all. Um, a husband had absolute power over an unwanted infant to put it to death or to force his wife to abort. And then finally, women were not taught to read and write. Most of them did not have an education, and this was because this was not fitting for a woman. And so what you need to know is that ancient Rome was not a good time to be a woman at all. But you also need to know that early Christianity was different. When Christianity exploded um, into the world, it was revolutionary for women. And so starting with Jesus, um, Jesus, uh, whenever he encounters a woman in the Gospels, he always elevates her station in life. Jesus gave women status. He lifted them up. Throughout the Gospels, uh, you see Jesus uh, teaching and engaging with women. And so the longest recorded conversation that we have of Jesus uh, talking was with a Samaritan woman. 
in an age where women were not educated and, and was, that was not a value for them, uh, Jesus had for many of his closest disciples women. They were his disciples, his learners. He brought them in. And then finally, uh, Jesus, well, not finally, I'll say also that Jesus, uh, when he ta- his teaching on divorce, made divorce laws the same for both men and women. And then in an age when a woman's testimony was not admissible in a court of law, many of you know the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. This leads uh, historians like Rodney Stark to say something like this. Modern and ancient historians agree that women were especially responsive to the early Christian movement. It also is agreed that women were accorded a considerably higher status within Christian circles than in the surrounding pagan societies. And so women flocked to early Christianity. Uh, Women poured into the doors because they knew that in this community, they were lifted up. They were given uh, status, and and they were elevated so much higher than they were in that ancient culture. Here's the question. If that's true about early Christianity and what Jesus said, why does Peter say what he says in this passage? Did Peter not get the memo here? Right? Was Peter going rogue? Is he just kind of reverting back to his patriarchal ways before he became a Christian? What I want you to see here in this next section is uh, four ways that even this passage is revolutionary for women in Peter's day. So uh, even what what Peter says here in this uh, passage that's shocking to us, I want you to see that it was revolutionary. First, I want you to see uh, that Peter views patriarchal marriage as as unjust and oppressive. As we read the passage, I want you to see that Peter here is not approving of patriarchal marriage. And it's important to know this because a lot of times people read this and they say, oh, what Peter's doing here is he's taking the, uh, the way marriage was in the culture and he's just bringing it into the church and saying, hey, just do the same thing. This is the way Christians ought to do it too. Peter is not doing that at all. Uh, this right here is not a marriage manual. This is not a marriage manual about how Christian men should relate to Christian women. There are places in the New Testament that are like that. So Ephesians 5 is about Christian men and Christian women and what an ideal Christian marriage looks like. This is not one of those passages. This is not an ideal Christian marriage. Because look at the passage. This is a very unideal situation. Peter is addressing a Christian woman who is married to a pagan man who's operating under all the assumptions of patriarchy. This is not the ideal situation. This is not a a marriage manual, but a survival manual for a woman living with a man with all of these assumptions. One of the most important little phrases in the passage is at the very beginning where Peter says, likewise, or in the same way. So if you circle things in your Bible, uh, circle in the same way. Because what Peter is saying here is is he's connecting this passage to the passage before it and the passage before that. So right before this passage, Peter's been talking to masters and slaves. And he's told the slave, I want you to submit to your master. Now before that, he was talking to uh, Christians living under the oppressive domination of uh, Caesar Nero, the emperor. And he says, I want you to submit to that emperor. And just as Peter is not approving of Caesar Nero and his entire uh, you know, gover- government and his policies, and just the way Peter is not approving to, about slavery and this is not why he tells slaves to obey their masters. is because he approves of slavery. So Peter's not painting this picture as something that he approves of. 
Again, this is an unideal situation. And Peter views it, just as he views uh, slavery in that day, as a situation that is unjust and oppressive. Here's the, here's the second thing I want you to see in this passage. Uh, I want you to also see that Peter addresses women as free moral agents. So when you, you look at the passage, notice first that he speaks to women here. Well, you think, well, he's tied. Yeah, of course, no big deal. Well, it wouldn't be a big deal to us. But in that ancient culture, this would have been a huge deal. Because all the old, uh, other, uh, you know, philosophical and, and moral thinkers, when they address the household, they always address the man. They address the man as the head of the house who had all the power and authority. And he told them, this is how you keep your wife and your children in order. It would have been shocking here in a public letter. Remember, this is read aloud to congregations in public for Peter to address, to address a woman here. He speaks to her as if she isn't equal because he believes that she is. He speaks to her as if she has moral and, and, and spiritual agency because he believes that she does. Notice here uh, a lot has been made about how Peter, get, you know, he, he spends six verses talking to women and then he only gives one little tiny verse talking to a man. That seems unfair, right? But in this ancient culture, just the fact that he speaks to women more than he does a man would have been a big deal. He speaks to her before he speaks to the man. Would have been shocking. But somebody says, well, look what he tells her. He tells her to submit. And that's not good, right? I mean, that's a, yeah, he talks to her more, but he's telling her to, to obey her husband and to call him Lord. Yeah, that's true, and we'll get to that. But notice what he doesn't tell the woman to do. He doesn't tell her to go back to the religion of her husband. And this would have been a very, very big deal. In that day and age, women were expected to adopt the religion of their husband. And just the fact that a woman joined a different religion would have been viewed as insubordination. It would have been an affront to that patriarchal culture. But notice Peter assumes that this woman has the right and the responsibility to follow Jesus on her own. He doesn't tell her to go back and bring her husband. He just says, hey, he assumes she's got the right to do this. It's funny, I've done a lot of uh, membership interviews and talked to women, uh, some women who have joined the church without their husband because their husband wasn't a believer. And some of these women say to me, Brent, it just feels weird to do this. I almost feel like I'm not, like I should be back with my husband or something. It's even hard for some people nowadays, but in this ancient culture, for a woman to depart from her husband like that, to follow Jesus would have been shocking. And Peter affirms it. I want you to see another thing. This is the third thing that is important. Peter requires husbands to treat their wives with honor and equality. He requires them to treat their wives with honor and equality. Now, again, we'd say, well, yeah, no, duh, of course you do this. But again, in that ancient culture where women were property, where women had no rights at all, Peter is saying, you treat your wife with honor as an equal, and that would have been unheard of and shocking in this ancient culture. Now look at verse 7. And again, I know it's just one verse that, that he gives to the men here. But listen to this verse. This is an incredible verse. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman 
as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And notice what Peter says here. He says, I want you to honor her, and I want you to treat her as, as an equal heir to the, to, the, to the way of Jesus, to the, the life that you have by grace. He does here call the wife the weaker vessel. Now, what does he mean by that? He's not, this is not a demeaning term. He's not saying that she is uh, inferior to the man. Uh, you know, we all know that in most cases, men are physically stronger than women. Uh, not all the time, but in most cases, uh, men, just, men just have greater spiritual strength. We're bigger. We're stronger. But in that ancient culture, uh, they also had social power. They had much more social power than women. What's so funny? I, <laughs> are you going to challenge me to an arm wrestling match? No. Okay. Sorry. That was weird. But in that ancient culture, uh, women uh, or men had much more social power. They could use their power to dominate women. This power, power uh, dynamic could have been abused by these men, and they could use their power to demean and dominate the women. And Peter says, don't you ever use your power to dominate a woman. How should you use your power? He says, I want you to use your power to honor women. To honor women. And this is incredible because honor means respect. It means you give her dignity. You give her R-E-S-B-E-C-T. Tell you what it means to me. Sock it to me, sock it to me, right? Way before Aretha Franklin said that, Peter the Apostle is saying to these ancient women, respect. Your husband must respect you. And even this word respect in that ancient, this is, this is too soft of a way to interpret that. Uh, this is the same word used of Jesus in a passage before where it says that he's a precious cornerstone. He says, you view your wife as honorable. You respect her. You give her dignity. You must respect her. Why should he respect her? Because he says she is a co-heir with you of the grace of life. She is a co-heir. She is an equal. Uh, Paul says in another place, he says, all of us, men and women, are sons of God. In that ancient culture, uh, the sons were the ones who were heirs. Women didn't get the inheritance. Sons did. And he says, in Christ, male and female are both sons, meaning they are both heirs. And he goes on to say that in Christ, there is neither a slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. You are fellow heirs. Women, you are not lesser or less than. You are equal in dignity and worth to your husband. And this is such a, a strong point that Peter makes that he goes on and he says, if you don't treat her with honor and with equality, he says, your prayers will not be hindered or they will be hindered. God's not going to hear your prayers, he says, if you demean your wife. Peter requires husbands to treat wives with honor and equality. And then uh, finally, Peter elevates the role of self-sacrificial service. And here we get to the point where Peter does instruct these women to submit to their husbands. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectable and pure conduct, do not let your, your adorning be external, 
uh, the, bri- the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So he does say, women, you should submit to your husband. But what I want you to see that this is different than like, say, in Ephesians chapter 5. Remember, Ephesians 5, that's the ideal marriage. This is men men and women in the Christian church. This is what a Christian marriage looks like. And there is submission there, but it's all within this framework of mutual submission and respect. In this passage, this is different, though. This is a Christian woman towards a non-Christian man, and this is very much a one-way submission. He's not going to submit to you at all. He's not going to, he's, this is a man operating under the system of patriarchy. And yet he says, I want you to submit to him. Even though you may not get that in return. Now, why does he say that? Well, first, I want you to see that Peter is not instructing these women to be doormats. He's not saying it's okay that if you are physically or mentally abused, and that you need to stay in that marriage. He's not saying that, you know, if, the, if you or your, husband, or your children are in danger from your husband, that you need to stay there. Uh, Jesus, when he talked about divorce, and Paul, when he talked about it, there's a place where he mentions abandonment. And I would say that if a man is abusing a woman physically and verbally, that would be a case of abandonment. And if you're in that situation, I would encourage you to get out. Protect yourself and your children. Peter's not saying that you've got to stay in a situation like that. So what is he saying? I think he's saying something like this. He's saying, women, you as a Christian are free. We are all sons and daughters of God. We, there is no male or female. You have, there is equal status. You are free as a Christian woman. You are equal and you have rights. You are to be honored But in this situation, I want you to lay down your freedom to serve your non-Christian husband. I want you to use your freedom to lay down your rights and to serve your husband. Why would he tell her to do that? Well, he tells her why. He says, so that, this is in verse 1, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Why do this? So that when your husband sees this humility, he might be won over to Christ without a word. When you look at this passage and the passage before it and the passage before that, he talks about submission in all three passages. And in in every single one, he is telling the person who's on that submitting in to follow in the steps of Jesus. Jesus Christ when he came into this world, took the form of a servant. And he elevated the act of humility and self-sacrifice. And so he's telling these women, I want you to be like Jesus here. I don't want you to live in such a way that when your husband looks at you, he sees you serving him the same way Jesus would serve him. Have you guys heard the story of, uh, it's a joke, about a woman, she, she goes with her husband to the doctor because the, was, the husband is experiencing some uh, health issues. And so the, uh, the husband is examined by the doctor. And afterwards, the doctor tells the husband to leave the room. And he looks at this wife and he says, your husband's in bad shape. And honestly, I, I don't know if he's going to make it. 
But he says, I think we could save your husband, but it's going to be work. You're going to have to serve him hand and foot. 24-7, you're going to have to cook for him and clean for him and, and do everything for him. And just, it's going to be a demeaning, you know, several months here. But I think if you do that, your husband can be saved. I think he might be. And the wife says, okay, okay. And so she leaves the, uh, the doctor's office and she goes out and her husband says, what did he say? What did he say? And she said, I'm sorry. He said, you're going to die. You could switch the roles from husband to wife here. It doesn't matter. Nobody likes to serve. Nobody likes to take the lower place. In our culture, it's not an honor. But in Jesus' world, it's the highest honor. Jesus Christ took the form of a servant on the cross in order to win us. And he's saying, Wife, as you're in this relationship with this non-Christian husband, this is the way I want you to act so that when he sees that humility, the same humility, by the way, that Jesus describes himself with in Matthew 11, I am meek and lowly in heart. When they see that Jesus-like character in your life, it's going to be compelling. All right, so there's the passage. And and now I want to just spend some time applying this. So how might this relate to our particular context? Uh, How might this teaching here where uh, Peter instructs uh, women and and men, husbands and wives here, how might this relate to us? Well, here's what I want to do. I want to first talk to husbands. Uh, I think what this says, at very least to Christian husbands, is that you ought to be very, very careful to honor your wife. If you are a Christian husband... It doesn't matter what the what rest of the world says. It doesn't matter the way anybody else treats their wife. You as a Christian man, of all men, ought to treat your wife with honor as an equal. And what this means is that if you are being physically, this, maybe this goes without saying, but this at very least is, means if you are being physically abusive to your wife, or emotionally abusive or verbally abusive, you need to stop it. That is an affront to God, and it is a major, major sin. This passage condemns that. But I think it also speaks to, you know, even if there are lots of subtle, you know, kind of less extreme ways that we can belittle and demean our spouses, right? It means that we ought to be careful that the words that we use and the thoughts that we have and the actions that we take towards our wife Communicate to her, I honor you as an equal. This means that we should never objectify our wives. You know, women, their bodies are objectified already all all the time in our culture. Just go look at the billboards in our city. As a Christian man, you ought never to insinuate to your wife that the most important thing about her is her physical appearance, that her mind and her body don't matter. As a Christian man of all men, we ought to honor and respect the women that we live with. And again, we could do this in in a lot of subtle ways. I was just thinking about my life, and um, I want to give you a little example in my life. And don't worry, I talked to my wife before I'm giving you this example. But there are subtle ways that we can belittle our spouses. And so um, there was a time in my my marriage when... um, at work, I, was, I had had a coach, a mentor, who was uh, coaching me on uh, ministry. And I would 
ask him questions, and he would give me advice, and he would help me to be a better pastor. And anyway, this man, he gave me a piece of advice one day that was revolutionary. It was just this, this something I'd never even seen it before. I'd never heard it before. It just spoke right into my, my ministry and my life. It changed everything. It was amazing. And so I went home. I was so excited to tell Anita about this. I, was, I wanted to tell her just this thing. And so I said, babe, you should have heard what my coach said today. It was amazing. And I, and I went on and I told her what he said. And, and after I explained it, I said, wasn't that amazing? And there was like this deafening silence. And men, you know the deafening, uncomfortable, awkward silence. And finally, she, she looked at me and she said, Brent, I've been telling you that for years. And I remember just thinking, like, I mean, I, there, I, didn't, wasn't, I never wanted to belittle my wife. But I was giving off the impression that her opinion didn't matter. And so this, here, this is a very uncomfortable question, but ask yourself, are there any words that I say or things that I do that might belittle my wife? You want to be super brave? Ask her that question. Because this passage, it tells Christian men that they need to honor their wives as equals, as fellow heirs. What might it look like for us to do that? Well, secondly, let me, let me talk to Christian wives here. This is dangerous ground, I know, as a man speaking into this situation. But, but I want to speak into this exact situation. Peter here is talking to Christian wives who are married to non-Christian men. And there's actually a lot of women in this congregation that are in that exact situation. And so what might be some application for a Christian woman who desperately wants her husband to know Jesus? How does she live with him? I want you to see that Peter here, I think he acknowledges how difficult this situation can be. I mean, he puts it in the, in the same context of like being under Nero and then under slaves and masters. And, and he says, man, it's really hard to live with a, with a non-Christian man, especially in this context. And think about how hard, it's hard enough to live with a, just a, someone of another gender. You know what I mean? Someone of another gender, they're the other they're different. There's one uh, psychologist I know who said, if I could boil down all the fights in a marriage to one word, it would be this, difference. Men and women are different. You are living with the other. And sometimes when you view the other, it's very easy to demean them and think they're not as good as you. It's hard enough to live with just a Christian other. But imagine living with someone who's not only of another gender, but also of another religion. How easy would it be to demean them and to argue with them and to get in fights with them? Peter says, don't you do that. When, I go, when you go into that marriage, I want you to lay down your rights and I want you to serve them just as Jesus would serve them. In other words, Christian wife, don't go home and turn on Tim Keller and you know, blast it, you know, when he's talking, when he's giving reasons why you should believe in Christianity. Don't do that, necessarily. Don't blast, you know, K-Wave or Christian music or whatever at home all the time to teach him a lesson. Don't put gospel tracks under his pillow. Peter would say, I want you to lay down your rights, and I want you to serve him. So often, we want to win 
you know, we want to win the battle of the sexes. We want to win, we want to win the argument about Christianity. And he says, as a Christian person and a non, living with a non-Christian, your job is not to win. What does he say? He uses the language. He says, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word. As they, as they watch the way you serve them as Jesus would serve them. Here's the opportunity. If you're a Christian person living in a non-Christian marriage, what an opportunity that is for a person to get a first-hand glimpse into what it might look like for Christ to be formed in a human being's life. What an amazing opportunity for them to see firsthand what it might look like for Jesus to serve them. Finally, let let me apply this to all of us, because all of us have non-Christians living in our lives. Uh, We have non-Christian spouses, maybe we have non-Christian sons-in-laws, we have non-Christian brothers, we have non-Christian mothers, we have non-Christian fathers, we have non-Christians living in our family. What might it look like for you to go into that relationship and instead of wanting to win an argument, you use your freedom to lay down your rights and to serve them in order to win them? And so Peter wraps up this section where he's talking about, you know, being around unbelievers and, and how I want you to engage, engage with non-believers in the, this world. Even if you're married to one of them, he says, one of the most effective ways to evangelize is to be like Jesus and serve people. How powerful that would be when they saw this beautiful character, not of the outward appearance, but they see this beautiful inward character humility and meekness, living with them and serving them. Picture the gospel. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this passage um, about wives and husbands, about this unique situation where um, he's addressing wives living with men who are living with a husband who is um, of a different uh, faith perspective and belief. God, I pray that you would help us to apply this teaching God, I pray that your spirit would, would speak to us. And I pray that wherever we are in our lives, whatever um, relationships uh, you're speaking to us about, I pray that you would change us. I pray that as husbands, the way we treat our wives would be countercultural and a light to this world. I pray, God, that as uh, Wives who maybe be li- who are living with non-Christian husbands, I pray that you would empower them and enable them to love their husbands the way you love them and to treat them the way Jesus would treat them. And we pray that you would do this in Jesus' name.